That's a cool treat for us. And let me say happy Sunday, happy Lord's Day to you, to those of you who are here in person and to those of you who are worshiping at home. Outside, um, there is some chilly weather, yeah? It kind of faked this out a week ago when it hit 60 degrees and then it went back, as Midwestern marches do. But despite the chilly weather, the season right now is spring. So despite the way things feel, and despite the way things look outside, things are just beginning to grow here in the Midwest. Brownish grass is starting to turn that brighter greenish hue, which will grow darker and darker even in the next few weeks. A few brave daffodils have fought their way up through the icy soil and through patches of snow this week, reaching upward toward the sun, and soon they'll begin to unveil their yellow flowers. Within the next two weeks or so, our tree branches, which right now are brown and look lifeless and empty and barren and as good as dead, Within two weeks or so, they'll begin to bud as vibrant green new life will begin to fill up the branchy skeletons of those oak trees and maple trees that line our streets. Here in the Midwest, about this time of year, we get to witness a quiet parable of resurrection. It's a quiet parable of the transition from empty branches to flourishing new life. The book of Psalms, in the middle of our Bibles, the book of Psalms begins with the imagery of a flourishing, leafy, green tree. Psalm number one, the intentional beginning of the book of Psalms says, Blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. According to Psalm 1, to be blessed is to live the life that truly and ultimately flourishes. According to Psalm 1, to be blessed is to live a life that is like a tree full of green leaves that never wither and never fade and never disappear. What does it mean to live a life planted by streams of life-giving water? Who is the person who is blessed like that flourishing tree? Whether we're thinking in terms of the Roman world of Jesus' day, or whether we're thinking in terms of the American world of our day, Our world is constantly telling us what it means to live a blessed life. 
And our world is constantly getting it wrong. The world says, blessed are those who feel like they've got everything they need. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says, blessed are those who live, laugh, and love their life. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The world says, blessed are those who have the power to get what they want. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. The world says, blessed are those who are free to express themselves however they feel like it, whenever they feel like it. Blessed are those who follow their desires and their appetites wherever their desires and appetites may lead. See every Disney movie ever made. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who have an appetite for righteousness. You see, whether it's the Roman world of Jesus' day or the American world of our day, our world is constantly telling us what it means to live a blessed life. Our world is constantly trying to define for us what a flourishing life will look like and what a flourishing life will feel like. But here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus comes along and he redefines for us. He gives us a glimpse into reality and he, he unmasks all of, the, all of the false pictures that have been given to us. And he tells us this is what a truly blessed life is. This is what a truly and ultimately flourishing life looks like right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And now today, as we continue our sermon series through these beatitudes or these blessings in Matthew chapter 5, we come to consider the fifth, sixth, and seventh blessings, these fifth, sixth, and seventh countercultural blessings that Jesus has to offer. Jesus is speaking as Matthew 5.1 tells us, to a gathering of people that includes both the crowds and the disciples. The crowds are those who have some degree of interest in Jesus, even though they haven't made many sacrifices or demonstrated their actual desire to follow Him yet. And yet Jesus has compassion on the crowds Matthew 9 says that when Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that the crowds are full of people who need a good shepherd in their lives. And so he begins to speak these words 
Offering an invitation into the kingdom of heaven. Offering motivation to follow Him. But Jesus sees not only the crowds, He sees also the disciples. These disciples have already made some sacrifices in the process of beginning to follow Him, but it's a very immature group. As we'll see as the book of Matthew unfolds, there's a lot that they don't get. There's a lot of ways in which they just don't understand. A lot of ways that they'll continue to fail and fall short. But Jesus sees the crowds. And with compassion, He offers these words of invitation and motivation. He sees the disciples who have begun to follow Him and don't yet fully get it. And to them as well, He offers instruction and motivation for the journey of following Him. Some of us here today may feel like we're more like part of the crowds. We're just kind of back at a distance with some degree of curiosity and interest about Jesus. Not really sure if we even belong. Some of us today may feel more like disciples, but if we're honest, we're very aware of how immature we are in our own discipleship. And wherever you may find yourself today, feeling like you're at the back of the crowds or right in the middle of the crew of disciples, I hope that as we listen to these words, we'll hear the voice of Jesus addressing us today with His gracious invitation to come and follow Him, with His gracious instruction about what that means and the sketch of what that looks like, and with His gracious promises of motivation that magnetically draw something out of our hearts. I hope that as we think about these words today, I hope that the Holy Spirit will speak through these words written on pages. I hope we'll hear these not just as interesting old words, but as the words of Jesus for us today. Let's take a few minutes and consider these blessings that Jesus offers. We'll consider first the blessing that Jesus speaks in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Maybe we'll take a minute or two and consider what does it mean to be merciful? Later in the book of Matthew, two different times... In Matthew chapter 9 and again in Matthew chapter 20, we'll read about two blind men in crowds as Jesus is passing by. And as Jesus is passing through, those blind men will call out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, 
As these fellows who can't see are, are there in the middle of the crowd calling out, have mercy on us. Some of the people in the crowds find it inappropriate that they're shouting at Jesus. They find it inappropriate that they're calling out for Jesus' mercy. And so people in the crowds try to hush them the way that people sometimes try to hush children in the middle of a worship service. Be quiet, would you? Jesus is here. I said, think about this from the perspective of these blind guys. They have no ability to see. They're trying desperately to use their voices to call out for Jesus, and other people are trying to take away their voices, leaving them without vision and without voice. And yet these people call out, these people with no eyes, now no voice, These people with so little social standing that the crowds treat them as people who shouldn't even make a noise. People who are just a bother, just a nuisance to everybody else around them. And yet they cry out, have mercy on us, son of David, and what will Jesus do? With compassion, Jesus will see them. And He will move toward them. He will treat them with dignity. And He will heal them. He doesn't first evaluate the moral integrity of their lives. Let's see if you're good enough to be healed. He does not evaluate their worthiness. He doesn't analyze their ability to pay Him back in any way. He doesn't say to them, your blindness is not my problem, you go deal with it. No, in love, Jesus sees their blindness and He speaks to them and He gives them eyes to see. This is the mercy of Jesus. Mercy is highlighted in the famous story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that Jesus told to a self-confident man who wanted to justify himself. Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan is about a man dying on the side of the road. The priest sees him and won't help. Not my problem. Levite sees him, won't offer a hand. Not my problem. But the Samaritan sees the dying man and he refuses to say, that's not my problem. The Samaritan sees the man and he begins to act on the man's behalf. He shows surprising love and extravagant generosity for the man in his pain and his danger And as the story of the Good Samaritan ends, Jesus looks back at the man Jesus is having a conversation with, the upstanding fella who wants to justify himself. And Jesus asks him a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man replies, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus' reply, go 
do likewise. This is the kind of mercy that Jesus sees as the fulfillment of everything written in the law and the prophets. A love that moves toward other people in their pain and in their danger. A love that doesn't say, that's not my problem, but rather a love that says, I'm here for you. One day Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to follow him. This was outrageous because tax collectors worked for the empire. We live in a politically polarized and politically charged era, so we start to understand why this is such a big deal, right? Fellow worked for the government. And to many Jewish people's eyes, that made him a traitor. This guy who had made his wealth by the power of of the oppressive Roman Empire, Jesus sees him and Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. And then Jesus not only calls Matthew to follow him, Jesus goes and has a meal at Matthew's house. And now other people who work for the oppressive Roman Empire want to come and have a meal with him too. Now other people who are known as sinners want to come and have a seat at the table and Jesus and the disciples welcome them and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, see this mess of people who work for the oppressive Roman government and this mess of people whose reputation are known to be sinners sitting in between disciples and in between Jesus and talking and sharing food together. And the Pharisees begin to complain And when Jesus hears it, Jesus rebukes them, borrowing words from the book of Hosea. And he says to the Pharisees and religious leaders, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus meets people known for their years of sin and their years of guilt. And he does not say, not my problem, whatever they suffer, they brought it on themselves. Jesus sees people known for their years of sin and guilt. And in his mercy, he sits down with them. He lets his own reputation get dragged down by association with them. He loves them. He speaks up for them and defends them in the face of arrogant religious people who want to keep on looking down on them. He invites them into the kingdom of God. And as Christians, when we see other people in pain, in need, and in danger, we're wise to remember the inexpressible mercy of God toward us. 
There's a New Testament letter called Titus, written by one Christian leader to another Christian leader. And it says this, We ourselves were once foolish. Some of you will identify with that right away. Others of you might think, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a church leader. I'm a Christian leader. This is a letter from a Christian leader to a Christian leader. Maybe you need to put yourself into that we. In Titus chapter 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own what? Mercy. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a recipient of lavish and extravagant mercy poured out on your life. Let me say this to everyone in this room, to every believer in this room, even to the most mature and most influential Christian leaders in this room, your life, is a part of the kingdom of heaven, not because of works done by you in righteousness, but because of His mercy. Because He didn't look at your plight in your sins, in your own path, which would have led you, if left to yourself, all the way to hell. He didn't look at you in your path that you were running down full speed on your own and say, let him or her have what he or she deserves. He didn't look at us and say, not my problem. They brought it on themselves. Our God who describes himself as the Lord The Lord, merciful and gracious. He proved who He is and what He's like by not abandoning us in our need, but by moving toward us. Taking the first step, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy. Taking the first step to send His own Son to live the life that we didn't live. To die the death that we deserved. To rise again in new life so that we might live forevermore with Him. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? It means to move toward others in love. 
to move toward them in love, not because of what they deserve, not because of what they can repay, but as an expression of love, compassion, mercy. To move toward them and to meet them in their pain, their problems, their need, and to take action on their behalf. And when we realize how merciful God has been toward us, what does that do in our hearts? It should make us merciful toward others. It should make us more and more like the one who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It should make us more and more like the one who, when we had turned our backs on him, he came and found us, not because of works done by righteousness, but because of his mercy. In his book on discipleship, which we'll look at again next week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer drives home Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it like this, Blessed are the merciful. They have an irresistible love for the lowly, the sick, for those who are in misery, for those who are demeaned and abused, for those who suffer injustice and are rejected, for everyone in pain and anxiety. They seek out those who have fallen into sin and guilt. No need is too great. No sin is too dreadful for mercy to reach. The merciful give their own honor to those who have fallen into shame. And if necessary, like Jesus we might add, they take that shame into themselves. But the promise is that God will bend down low and take on their sin and shame. It will be God's honor to bear the shame of sinners and to clothe them with His own honor. Blessed are the merciful, for they have the merciful one as their Lord. Thanks be to God. Right? See, in a world that teaches us to look at others in pain and in their problems and in their needs, in a world that teaches us to look at others and say, that's not my problem. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful and they will receive mercy. See, Jesus invites us to follow Him in a life of mercy. He invites us as recipients of mercy to follow Him in the way of mercy with this as our hope-giving motivation. However much mercy we may give and give and give to others, His mercy will always be more. Therefore, the life that truly flourishes... It's not the life that says I'm hanging on to what's mine and I'm only sharing my life with those who deserve it. Therefore, the life that truly flourishes is a life characterized by mercy. The next invitation and motivation is found in verse 8, the sixth blessing of Jesus here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. This idea of purity of heart certainly speaks to an issue that will come up over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see it throughout the next few months, Lord willing, as we keep walking through this sermon that Jesus preached. This idea of purity of heart speaks to this issue of purity that goes deeper than the surface level. It speaks to this issue of a kind of love for God and a kind of love for people that's not just an outward show for pretend. It's not just an outward show so that other people say, wow, you're a really good person. It's not just an outward facade. I'm doing my religious things. It's purity of heart. It's not a purity of practices. It's a purity of heart. A concept that we'll come back to you over and over. But what is this idea of purity itself? It might require a little bit of consideration. Think about it like this. What is pure gold? Pure gold is gold that doesn't have other minerals mixed in with it, right? What's pure water? Pure water is water that is not mixed with mud or other impurities, for lack of a better word. To be pure is to not have other things mixed and mingled in. What then does it mean to have a pure heart? To have a pure heart is to have a passion for God and His ways without other passions that pull us in other directions. To have a pure heart is to have a love for God and a love for our neighbor without other desires and without other loves pulling us in other directions. To have a pure heart is to have a heart for God that is not mixed with all of the things that the rest of the world loves. Um, I've been reading a lot of St. Augustine lately. He's a North African bishop who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. He wrote a famous book that's a part of kind of the canon of the classics of Western literature called Augustine's Confessions. It's kind of an autobiography, maybe 300 or so pages long, except it's a very unusual autobiography because it's entirely a prayer. It's a 300-page long prayer in which he reflects on the course of his life before the face of God. And as St. Augustine went back and recounted the course of his life, it's kind of a an interesting read if we can get back 1,600 years and try to see through some of the things that are just so odd to our modern Western eyes. It's a fascinating read, which reads kind of like the journey of a prodigal son. Augustine grew up with a Christian mom and a non-Christian dad, probably an African mom and a European dad for that matter. 
But he grew up in North Africa with a Christian mom who prayed for him and who longed for him to participate in her Christian faith. But by the time he was in his teenage years, in his 20s, he didn't want to have anything to do with his mom's faith anymore. And so he went off down this road, kind of seeking out other ways to live his life, seeking out other paths to true fulfillment of life. And of course, none of it really satisfies, as Augustine himself famously observes, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There's a restlessness built up inside of us. There's a restlessness deep inside. And as he ran away from God, he ran into all kinds of intellectual doubts and intellectual questions. He ran into other sects that were kind of Christian, but very different than historic and than the historic Christianity that believers around the world and across time had believed in. Over time, he begins to kind of deconstruct those weird beliefs that he has absorbed over time. Manichaean views, they're called in history. He begins to kind of deconstruct and detach himself from those Manichaean views and he begins to find intellectual clarity. He begins to believe that the God of the Bible is really God. But here's one of the interesting things that Augustine observes as he looks back over the course of his own life story. He begins to realize that his deepest problems are not just intellectual problems. His deepest reservations about following the Lord aren't ultimately his intellectual doubts. Even as he overcomes his intellectual doubts, there is still one major hurdle that remains which he can't find a way to get past. And he expresses, or he remembers how he used to pray kind of a a memorable prayer that went something like this. Oh Lord, give me chastity, And self-control, but not yet. (laughs) In other words, for Augustine, even once he began to overcome the intellectual doubts and the questions, even once he began to believe that the God of the Bible is who the God of the Bible says he is, there was still something in Augustine's case that kept him from following the Lord. What was it? It was his sexual desires. For a time, his sexual desires seemed much more compelling to him. His appetites, his flesh, seemed much more compelling to him than the truth of Christianity that he was beginning to discover, which is why he would pray to the Lord, God, I need your help with this stuff, but not yet. (laughs) Help me to live a life that honors you, but not yet. I want to keep living my way for a little while longer. Eventually, Augustine, if you read through the confessions, will read from the New Testament and there will be kind of a a life-changing watershed moment as he's reading from the Scriptures. He'll decide that it's worth following the Lord even if it means denying himself. Even if it means not giving in to those desires which for quite some time seemed so much more compelling to him. And it's interesting though, one of the things that we notice historically if we read Augustine's confessions 
alongside other books that were written around the same time or before his day. Most Christians who wrote their testimony, or most Christians who li- whose life stories were written, the life story would usually go like this. I wasn't a Christian. I did a lot of wrong things. I devoted my life to Christ, and I've been doing great ever since. But St. Augustine comes along and he writes his own autobiography, his own spiritual journey and prayer before God. And his life story goes like this. I wasn't a Christian. I was doing a lot of wrong things. I devoted my life to Christ. And there are still a lot of sinful desires remaining in my heart. Even as a bishop, he admitted there were still conflicting desires tugging this way or that way. He still needed God's help and needed it desperately. His heart, which once was so divided that even though his mind saw the truth, he couldn't get there. Even once he got there, he saw that his heart still had these conflicting desires. And so what does Augustine do? He teaches us through his example to pray prayers like this. Lord, give me what you call me to do. And then call me to do whatever you want. He finds himself the route out of this divided, conflicting heart. It's not to pretend that it's all good. That's just pretend, isn't it? It's not to say I'm doing all of the outward religious stuff, so I'm good. How far would that get you? It's to come before God with authenticity and say, God... Call me to do what you will, but every single day I'm going to need to depend on your grace to do it. And in this way, St. Augustine discovered something of what it means for a Christian to live, not with a divided and fractured and fragmented heart that pulls us in every direction and keeps us from following him, but he teaches us a path toward following God with a unified Singular focus in life, the love of the Lord and love for other people. And yes, our desires still will be mixed. There still will be desires of the flesh at war with desires of the spirit. But he shows us a path forward, a path of ongoing daily dependence on God saying, call me to do what you will, but I'm going to need you, your help in order to do it. Augustine gives us a picture of what it means to live with a pure heart. And maybe for you, that great hurdle of desire is not so much sexual desires, but maybe for you, there are ways that you tend to demand your own way with other people you live with or other people you work with or other people you're close to. Maybe for you, as Josh was talking about last week, there are just other things that kind of cloud our vision, that get in our way, other loves that can be as simple as the love of possessions. That God, God doesn't intend for us not to have food and shelter, but sometimes we just make idols out of these things and we think the solution to the restlessness of my heart is a bigger house. The solution to the restlessness of my heart is better clothes that will make people like me more. Sometimes we think the solution to the restlessness of my heart is going to be just more security found in more savings getting accumulated. But Jesus comes along and he says, blessed are the pure in heart. In whose hearts 
there aren't other desires and other securities and other rests complicating things and keeping us from God. Blessed are those who, by dependence on God day by day, continue to turn their gaze toward Him in dependence. Blessed are the single-minded. Blessed are the pure of heart. For they will see God, Jesus says. Therefore, the life that truly flourishes is not the life that has the best car and the coolest clothes and the most Instagram followers and on and on and on. The life that truly flourishes is characterized by a single-minded devotion to the Lord. The next invitation and motivation is found here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. We hear sometimes that we as humans have this deeply wired impulse, or these deeply wired impulses of fight and flight, right? Sometimes freeze, but it doesn't fit as well in what I'm going to say, so I'm going to stick with fight and flight, all right? Preacher's prerogative sometimes. Peacemaking is not living out of the fighting impulse that sees everybody as an issue to go to blows over. But neither is peacemaking to live out of the flight impulse which sees any hard conversation as something to be avoided. To be a peacemaker is to have a goal of peace and harmony. And also to have the strength to do what needs to happen in order to move things in that direction. Peace breakers and fighters will overlook the goal of peace in peacemaking. I'm going to make something happen. Peace breakers and fighters will overlook the goal of peace. On the other hand, peace fakers and flighters, if you will, will overlook the means of moving toward peace. Why can't everybody get along? I better not say anything. Thanks be to God that we have a model in Jesus Christ who had the goal of peace and who was willing to do what was necessary even at the high price of his own suffering on our behalf in order to accomplish peace between us and God. For the sake of time, I think I need to keep on moving here. I'm not going to bog down in this. But here's the thing. In a world full of fight and flight impulses, as people who love indulging in peace breaking and peace faking, Jesus tells us that there's a family resemblance for all who belong to the kingdom of heaven. There's a family resemblance. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called part of the family of God, children of God, sons of God. 
Therefore, those who will truly and ultimately flourish are not those who devote their lives to fighting every fight, nor to those who devote their lives to running from every confrontation. But true and ultimate flourishing belongs to those who devote their lives to building bridges and healing divisions and laboring for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure and singular of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. These poetic words and poetic promises are beautiful. But here's where we need to admit something. If we're honest, others around us will not always describe us as merciful, will they? And we know that our hearts can demonstrate divided loyalties even as Christians. And if peacemaking was a paternity test, based on our track record alone, the paternity test of peacemaking might not reveal that we're part of the family of God. So, what now? I'm not going to talk about this as if it's just abstract. I had this wonderful experience earlier this week of being a part of a meeting with some, some friends on the church staff, which I do regularly. And we were talking through a few church-related things, and it kind of became so obvious. And, and, and throughout the discussion, one topic after another came up, and I just found myself in like critical Josh mode that afternoon, you know? And so it's just like, here's a topic, criticism. And then it's like, here's another topic. Oh, I've got a criticism for that. And then it's another topic. Oh, I got a cranky criticism for that one. I got another topic. Another criticism. I began to notice there's something critical. And at that point, all I could do was just joke about it and point out, I guess I'm kind of cranky today, huh? <laughs> that's it. That's it. But here's the thing, in God's kindness, Cranky Josh had to go back to sermon prep. <laughs> and Cranky Josh had to crack open the Bible and read these words, blessed are the merciful. And Cranky Josh started to feel some conviction. <laughs> I started to realize there's this picture of true human flourishing this picture of what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven begins to work itself out in our lives. There's this picture of what it looks like to live like a tree planted in the living waters that flow from Jesus Christ. And then I compare it with my life, and my life looks like a dead branch on a cold March morning in Illinois. Not a whole lot of fruit of mercy. Where do we go? when we realize that Jesus has painted for us a beautiful and compelling picture of what it looks like for us to participate in the kingdom of heaven, and we compare that with our own lives, and we say, these two things aren't exactly the same on 
Tuesday afternoon. Where do we go then? Here's where your Sunday school answer can serve you well. We go back to Jesus. We go back to the one who not only proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, who not only invited us in, but the one who gave his own life, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. We go back to Jesus who says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And on days when we feel especially like brown sticks with no green life coming out of them, we keep on listening. As Jesus assures us, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so as we read these Beatitudes that invite us into the kingdom of heaven and invite us into the pathway of following Jesus, a lot of times we have to come the way the Beatitudes themselves begin as spiritual beggars, poor in spirit, nothing in my hands I bring. I don't even have mercy to offer some Tuesday afternoons. And yet for all who draw near by faith in Jesus Christ, What do we discover as we draw near to the one who invited us and gave his own life for us and now lives through us? What do we find? We find, thanks be to God, that his mercy is more. And as we rely on him and abide in him day by day, we find that something of that family likeness begins to emerge. Maybe one little bud of green poking up through the cranky branches of our Tuesday afternoons at a time. But life, the life of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the purity of Christ, the love of Christ, the peacemaking gentleness and wisdom of Christ it begins to emerge all to His glory and for the good of His mission here on earth. And so, if you, like me, sometimes read these words and think to yourself, these pictures don't match up with my life, let me encourage you as you hear these words of Jesus to walk out these words with Jesus.